legacy of the last two years is going to be deglobalization. The kind of settler environment for inflation and interest rates is beginning to change. We're just in a different world now. And this is a, this is a very different kind of dynamic that investors are going to have to get used to. And that, that's the kind of essence of the, the macro super cycle. So I want to kick things off um, and just to set the scene, you did a great interview uh, with Alfonso Pecatiello and Andreas on the macro trading floor, which is another Blockworks show about three months ago. So I want to get your thoughts on how your, your thinking might have evolved since you've given that interview. But I want to start actually with this great blog post that you wrote back in July, which is the nightmare scenario for central bankers in general. So can you, can you walk us through what was the impetus for writing that blog post? What was kind of the TLDR and, and why do you think that, why did you decide to write that post? You know, it was quite clear that central bankers were beginning to freak out a little bit about some of the inflation data that, that, that we were seeing. And the question from investors mm. you know, for the past six months was always, was always when are they going to blink? You know, when is this going to be too much pain? When is the, the kind of central bank put going to come back and they'll ease policy and we, we'll be back to that kind of, you know, everything rallying again. And I think that investors just, you know, misunderstood um, the thing that central bankers were really worried about. You know, it wasn't that they were they were concerned about recession right now. It was more um, they had this kind of nightmare scenario of what happened in the 1970s. And I think you have to think about inflation from a central banker's perspective, which is not something investors are used to doing. You know, if they if they tighten too much and cause a recession, then that's kind of embarrassing, you know. But recessions happen to some of the best central bankers in history, and in fact, we celebrate some central bankers for actually causing recessions. So you remember Paul Volcker, and you know, breaking the back of of inflation, and he's he's kind of celebrated as this figure that was prepared to get tough in order to force inflation down. But but if if instead they fail to get a grip on inflation. And it turns into this kind of wage price spiral dynamic that we had in the 1970s. Then these central bankers are going to go down in history as a sort of um, textbook example of a monetary policy failure. You know, we'll still be talking about these central bankers in 30, 40 years time. And so from a personal perspective, the incentives of central bankers have been very different to those of investors. You know, they are prepared to generate an enormous amount of pain to prevent something that they see, you know, much nastier that might be further down the line. And they don't want to go in history, down in history as these complete jokers. So you have, you know, Jerome Powell kind of channeling Paul Volcker and telling us how fantastic he was. You have the, the ECB, you know, reminding us of how great the Bundesbank was and, you know, desperately doesn't want to go down in history as, as the, the kind of Bank of Italy that caused these, you know, disastrous policy errors. So, so my, you know, the, the point of that blog was really that, you know, you have to put yourself in the in the shoes of these central bankers and they're not going to blink. You know, as long as there's there's any chance of this turning into this kind of 1970s dynamic where inflation just spirals out of control, then they're always going to lean against that. And if that means a recession now rather than a much deeper recession in two or three years time, then they take that. And so that's that's a very different world to the one that investors have been used to, because we've been used to a world where Inflation is always threatening to break too low. So any trouble in the in the in the financial sector, any trouble in the in the global economy, they immediately cut interest rates to try and prevent their economy from turning into some kind of Japanese deflationary dynamic. But we're just in a different world now. We're in a world where the prevailing bias of monetary policy has just totally changed. And this is a, this is a very different kind of dynamic that investors are going to have to get used to because I think this is going to be sticking around. 
the guest on our show last week was Mike Howell, and he had this phrase, um, there are no doves in central bank heaven. Right. And uh, I think given given the choice, right, uh, between defining a legacy, you know, if you want a Burns or a Powell, I think, or a Burns and a, and a Volcker, I think we definitely want to go down the, uh, or Powell definitely sees himself and, and wants to channel that, that Volcker energy. Um, I've heard you bring up this comparison to the 1970s uh, multiple times. Uh, do you see that kind of stop start dynamic repeating itself um, in the current way of thinking? Or what parallels do you feel like are appropriate to draw from the 1970s to the current period? Yeah, I mean, I, I should be clear. I don't think this is the 1970s. You know, I, I think about the 1970s as basically a power struggle. So we had this, we had this kind of post World War II economy, this mixed economy. You had very powerful trade unions, very powerful labor versus capital, and so we then had this productivity slowdown that started from the, the kind of late 1960s onwards. And the 1970s was basically a power struggle about who should bear the costs of that productivity slowdown. Uh, and so you, you, then you had these these sort of commodity price shocks, these big commodity price shocks, and then uh, you had this pressure on real incomes that came from that, and you basically had this this conflict about who should who should kind of bear that burden. I think you know we basically spent the last forty years dismantling that economy. So you know since the the kind of late nineteen seventies, we've been living in this kind of neoliberalism, uh, this kind of neoliberalism regime, which has basically just meant that we spent 40 years destroying worker power. So we destroyed the trade unions, we opened up global capital markets, we, 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 we opened up our economies to the, to the rest of the world, we allowed you know, rapid immigration, we had this big increase in the labor force. So we basically destroyed worker power. And so what you see now is that when you get these big commodity price shocks, workers just get hit by this and you know we're seeing this right now with these this kind of big squeeze on real incomes that's happening particularly in europe but also in the us where wages are just not keeping pace with with um with the, the inflation that we're getting so what you have is is a very different type of dynamic instead of that sort of spiraling dynamic that we had in the 1970s we just have this big squeeze and so you know i think uh, as you said that the better historical analogy is actually with the 1940s because if you look at what the 1940s what actually happened in the 1940s you, know, you came out of the uh, out of world war 2 you had um, this massive supply side disruptions because we basically destroyed you know the global shipping industry we had massive shortages of commodities we had huge numbers of soldiers that we needed to, to reintegrate into the labor force. You had this big mismatch in labor markets. You had massive pent up demand because we'd had rationing for you know, about five years of, of rationing. And so you, were, you had this mm. mixture of you know, very aggressive pent up demand and very serious supply side disruptions. And it gave you this big surge in inflation. So U.S. prices after World War II basically increased 20%. In, in the U.K., we had an increase of 40%, so a massive increase in the price level. But what you didn't get is that conflict between labor and capital. So you didn't get the spiraling effect. You just had a one-off increase in the price level. And I think basically that's what we're, we're looking at right now, you know, the, the, kind, of, uh, the, the, the kind of feed through from the, from the last two years of pandemic and war has been this big shift up in the price level. But I think inflation then settles down. I don't think it goes back to 2% or below 2%, but I don't think we're going to be looking at inflation numbers anywhere near what we've been seeing you know, over the last 18 months. And certainly, I don't think we're going to get that kind of spiraling dynamic that we had in the 1970s. 
post the 1970s uh, sort of inflationary regime, we also had kind of that combination of Reagan and Thatcher, right? Uh, and that was an enormous shift in the direction of favoring capital, both from just like tax laws, but also deregulation. And that's, you know, part of the reason probably in, in addition to lowering, you know, that constant stepladder down of, of interest rates, why equities, especially US-based equities have done so well. Um, I guess two-part question for you is, you know, what is the, well, I'll just start with, what are the primary consequences of that regime potentially being at its end and a shift from a focus on capital and capital appreciation back to labor? So I think it changes everything. And that that's the kind of essence of the the macro super cycle that I talk about in my research. So I think you can trace these kind of long 40, 50 year super cycles in the macro economy. And they're basically about the balance of power between mm. labor and capital. So before the two world wars, you know, capital was totally dominant. We had, you know, rapid globalization. We had massive technological change because of the industrial revolution. So you had, um, you had, you had very low inflation, disinflation. You had a uh, big increase in the profit share, big decline in the wage share, growing polarization, growing inequality. You know, an economy that looked a lot like the, the economy that we've had over the past 10 years after the global financial crisis. And then after the two world wars, you had these big political shifts. You, you, you rebalanced the balance of power between labor and capital back towards labor. So you had the first socialist parties, you had the beginning of the welfare state, you had the first populist policies. We had a bit of deglobalization after the two world wars. Uh, you, you, you know, you just radically transform the economy. Uh, you know, the first trade unions emerged, the first socialist parties. And we came out of the Second World War with a very different type of economy, with a balance of power that was very firmly tilted towards labor. And for a long time, that seemed to work until you hit the 1970s and you get those wage price spirals and, you know, the, the, the power of labor almost goes too far. So then Thatcher, Reagan come in and they just dismantle that economy and they get help from central bankers. So you have, you know, the, the Bank of England and, um, you know, Paul Volcker raising interest rates very aggressively, which enabled um, this kind of the beginning of this neoliberal super cycle, because those politicians could then just completely destroy and decapitate the trade unions. So then, as you say, you then you then had this kind of 30, 40 year cycle that, that kind of ended after the global financial crisis when it hit an extreme. So we had zero interest rates. We had austerity everywhere. We had, um, you know, kind of endless QE. And the result of that was this, this, you know, really bizarre policy mix because we had monetary policy that was very, very expansionary, but completely ineffective. You know, QE did nothing to stimulate the economy. And you had fiscal policy that was much too tight and very effective. So austerity, you know, caused this kind of gut-wrenching, you know, destruction of the economy, you know, particularly in Europe, where it was most extreme. And, you know, the result of that was that you had zero interest rates and you had just had this constant re-rating of all asset prices. And you had a constant re-rating of sort of long-duration tech stocks in particular. Now, I think that world has changed. I think we emerged from this with a very different type of balance of power between labor and capital. You know, we already have very severe labor shortages. I think those are going to get worse over the next decade because of population population aging, but also because of deglobalization. You know, the legacy of the last two years is right. going to be deglobalization. You know, we're going to be shrinking supply chains. We're going to be reducing immigration. 
uh, we're going to be uh, there's going to be this kind of realignment of political powers globally towards these regional trading blocks rather than this kind of hyper globalization that we had over the past you know 30 40 years so we start to tilt the balance of power back towards labor for the first time in 40 years and that means that the the, the kind of secular environment for inflation and interest rates is beginning to change I think that you know the the, the the economy that we've had over the last twelve months probably exaggerates all of that. You know we're not going to have eight, nine, nine, ten percent inflation rates, but we're not going to have inflation going back to two sub two percent. So I think the the basic task of monetary policy is changing. You know from a world where inflation always threatened to, to fall too low was always threatening to fall below 2%. We're going to be in a world where inflation is always threatening to rise above 3%. And that means we're not going back to QE. We're not going back to zero interest rates. And it changes the whole focus of what investors have to do. Because for the last decade, all you needed to do as an investor is buy long duration US tech stocks and watch them get re-rated. You, know, you didn't need to be any sort of financial mm. genius to invest in those those companies and and enjoy massive returns. And now we're in a world where actually you need to think a bit more about the sort of environment that's emerging from this. You know, what are the growth opportunities in this new world? And how do you get exposure to those? So it's about picking value stocks. It's mm. about picking exposure to the real economy. It's about commodities. You know, commodity rationing and, and shortages is a sort of natural outcome of this, this new world. And so, you know, the basic task mm. of asset allocation is just radically changing and it's not going back to how it was before. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the labor market in general. And let's, let's move into like a threat of recession here, because I think that's the other, you know, I've heard you speak about this uh, as well. Um, and actually, there are many indicators if we're not in recessionary territory yet. Uh, it looks like things are headed that way. Um, at least some of the forward-looking uh, indicators like ISM and, and PMI and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but what one thing that's been persistently hot is the labor market, right? And you haven't seen that second mandate of the Fed, which we know they pay a lot of attention to, unemployment really budge despite earnings, you know, kind of finally start to revert in a pretty significant way, at least forward expectations of earnings in general. Walk us through what your, you know, why do you think the labor market remains as tight as it is? And is that a facet of or a direct result of this kind of shift, this broader shift that you're talking about, about capital uh, to labor? So I think, you know, I think the key point is that this isn't a recession. You know, we spent the last kind of three, four months debating this recession. But I think this is, uh, this is a sort of mm. fake recession. Because this is a fake business cycle. You know, nothing, you know, for the last two years, I've had investors saying, where are we in the cycle? Well, this, this isn't a cycle. You know, nothing about this is a normal economic cycle. We shut down the economy and we reopen the economy. And we're struggling to come to terms with, you know, what the what new world looks like. And it's, there's been all these kind of legacies from the last two years that are still, and these big distortions that are still trying to unwind. So I think we have, you know, we have a big problem in the manufacturing sector. And because economists tend to build leading indicators for the economy based on manufacturing activity, all of these leading indicators are plunging. But this was entirely predictable. You know, we have consumers switching from goods to services, which they were always going to do as we came out of the pandemic, just at the point where all of these retailers and wholesalers have been building up these massive inventories. So we have this kind of bullwhip effect in global supply chains, which has just been in a state of flux over the past two years that's beginning to turn the other way. So you have this massive kind of disinflation that's coming from 
global goods. Can I just get you to double click on exactly what that bullwhip effect? I know you were just starting to get into it there, but uh, you know, Michael Burry has been very public and kind of, uh, you know, you know, sharing this idea of the bullwhip effect. Can you just elaborate uh, for the listeners what exactly that is? Yeah, so it's it's you know basically uh, a kind of logistical chaos that we haven't had for a very long time. You know, we used to have recessions all the time that were caused by you know global supply chains, global inventories, because it was very hard for producers to figure out where demand was headed. Uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you, you just didn't have the kind of just-in-time supply logistics that we've been used to. And you didn't have the kind of computerization of, of supply chains. So you had these big inventory swings. Now, you know, over the past two years, because of the pandemic, because of the lockdowns, because of all the supply chaos, you've just had these massive inefficiencies in, in global supply chains. And for a long period, you know, when all the when consumers all over the world were basically sitting at home in lockdown, ordering stuff off the internet, you had this huge demand for goods, which these companies couldn't meet. And then they began to build up, you know, inventories of goods in order to meet demand just at the point where that demand had evaporated because we were then rotating back into services because we were coming out of the pandemic. So you had, um, you know, a situation where global supply chains seemed to be massively overheating to suddenly a situation where you've got massive disinflation coming from global supply chains. So that's the, that's the kind of bullwhip effect. It's this exaggeration of demand moves across the supply chain, which then caused these big distortions in the economy. And so, you know, we, we had an economy that appeared to be massively overheating because of those supply chains were now flipping the other way. This is a sort of fake recession signal. This isn't a genuine recession signal. This is a shift in the way people are, are choosing to spend their money. You know, we're now trying to book three holidays rather than, you know, buying buying home gym equipment off the internet. <laughs> so that, that's the bullwhip effect. And, it, and you know, it, and it should have been entirely predictable. Mm. But, you know, we can see very clearly from US retailers over the past three months where they've been they've been building up these inventories of stuff that they they don't they can no longer sell because you know people aren't spending money the same way that they were spending money 12 months ago when they started to build up those inventories so you get you get disinflation in mm. goods that comes from this but it's not a you know this isn't a genuine recession signal this is something that everyone should have seen coming and actually at the start of the year I was writing research saying we're going to get a summer recession scare that comes exactly from this dynamic i'm just amazed that it's here mm. and people are so freaked out by it. But in terms of the labor market, you know, I think you're right to focus on the labor market because, you know, you can't really define uh, a recession without looking at the labor market. Because for the US, I think recessions are defined by the labor market. You know, when employment starts to go down, when unemployment starts to go up, that is the dynamic that sets off a true recession. And the reason for that is that when people start to lose their jobs, you then get these second round effects. So people lose their jobs, they stop spending, people fear losing their jobs, they stop spending, that feeds back into corporate revenues, revenues go down, so you get further rounds of redundancies and the whole thing feeds on itself. That is the classic recession dynamic. We are a long way from that right now. And you know, today we had another big payroll number after last month's payroll number, you know, clearly confirmed that we're not seeing that sort of dynamic. And in fact, what we're seeing is very acute shortages of labor. And so, you know, even if demand is turning down, there is this big incentive for companies to actually hang on to their workers rather than let them go. Because if the demand recovers quickly, these companies are not going to be able to replace those workers quickly. 
So I just don't see that sort of that recession dynamic kicking in. There is a recession risk. That recession yeah. risk is coming from central banks over tightening, but we're not there yet. You know, we haven't got to the point where central banks are over tightening. So we shouldn't expect the labor market to start cracking. I guess that's my next question to you is then, do you see moderating inflation? I mean, I guess this last, the last month's CPI print, uh, we finally saw, you know, if not in, in the, re- the relaxation that we wanted to see, we at least went from above a nine handle to 8.5 or whatever it came at. So do you think that trend is going to continue or are there other pressures uh, that, you know, I guess what's your, what's your short to midterm view on inflation and whether or not we've rounded the corner? I think it's definitely moderating. So I think that, you know, I think the peak inflation story is probably right. I think um, we're a little bit vulnerable to what happens with Putin. You know, if Putin turns off uh, European gas supplies in the autumn, we're going to get another stagflationary shock to the global economy, which is not going to help that inflation narrative. But, you know, if we don't get that, uh, I think there are good reasons to think inflation will slow over the next three to six months. We have food prices globally coming off. We have commodity prices coming off. We have a lot of disinflation coming from global manufacturing because of this this bullwhip effect in, in inventory and supply chains. So I think there's good reasons to think inflation will come off. I think a big part of the inflation we've had is transitory and was always transitory, even if nobody wants to admit that anymore. So I think that part of inflation comes off pretty rapidly. The question, I think, is where inflation is ultimately going to settle. And are central banks prepared to tolerate slightly higher inflation than they were in the past? So my guess is that we're not going to go all the way down to 2% or sub 2%. I think that we'll probably linger above 3%, possibly as high as 3.5%. I know that central banks say uh, they don't want to accept an inflation rate of 35 3%. But I hope and I think that they're bluffing. I think that if inflation settles at three and a half percent and it turns out this is not the 1970s, you know, we're not getting double digit runaway inflation. I think central banks would bite your hand off if you offered them that right now. I don't think they'll admit that none of these central banks are ever going to tell us that they've raised their inflation target. But the way I think about this is that they're going to have a kind of revealed preference for higher inflation. And what I mean by that is that if inflation goes to three and a half percent and it stays there, they're not going to keep hiking aggressively in order to force it down that extra 150 basis points. So I think, you know, they they will tolerate a higher level of inflation than in the past. And I think that is really the the sort of key to a soft landing coming out of this. You know, there has to be some tolerance for higher inflation. If they are absolutely insistent that inflation has to go to 2%, then they're just going to keep hiking because I just don't see that that sort of dynamic is where we're headed. Hmm. So, you know, I uh, maybe to return again to the interview that you gave with Alfonso and Andreas, um, you know, your, your sort of advice at that period of time, which was May uh, of this year, which was June, July, four months ago, right? You said for the next uh, three to six months, uh, be, be bearish or at least be more cautious, right? If not, sit on your hands, do, do something like that. But maybe towards the end of the year, right, you start to see things turn around and that's when you move back into longer duration type assets, bonds, tech stocks, et cetera. Um, I'd love to know, you know, now that we're four months later and kind of into the teeth of what I think you called pretty accurately, has your view changed at all? Um, like if I ask you right now to, to kind of put your timeline on when we sort of start to see this, this pivot, right, of rounding the corner of inflation successfully, uh, the world's starting to get a little bit more optimistic uh, and understand that we aren't in a real recession here. What's your kind of timeline on all of that now? I think this is still quite messy, to be honest. 
I think that we still have these sort of big lingering distortions from the pandemic. I think we still have part of this growth scare to play out. So, you know, the thing that made me negative back uh, when I when I spoke to Alf was that, you know, we I was kind of anticipating this summer recession scare. And I, I think that's that's clearly started, but I think it probably has further to play out. I think that we're still going to get um, some further deterioration in leading indicators. The manufacturing sector looks horrible. Uh, I think we've got a very serious stagflationary shock in Europe. Um, you know, Europe, as, as bad as the US economy seems right now to some people, it is nowhere near as bad as what's happening in Europe right now. You know, we basically have inflation headed to 10% and wages growing up 1%. So people are getting seriously squeezed by this, this inflation. So I think that the sort of three, four month outlook is still fuzzy and confusing and messy. Uh, and you know, it's still vulnerable to what happens with uh, Ukraine and Putin and and you know the energy situation. But I think you know if, if you're looking at the, the sort of beginning of next year, I think inflation will be much lower. I think that we'll see clearer signs that the labour market has cooled down in the US. So I think wage growth will have slowed. I think job openings will have slowed, and I think that will make the Fed far more relaxed than it's been over the last um, over the last few months. I don't think um, they can pivot in the way that people are expecting, so I don't see that sort of environment where the Fed is quickly cutting interest rates. Um, I think right now financial markets are basically priced for perfection. You know, you have this sort of perfect 1995 style soft landing and Fed pivot. And this just looks very different to 1995. You know, we just don't have that sort of the same sort of dynamic as as we certainly don't have the sort of Goldilocks economy that Greenspan had in the mid 90s that allowed him to engineer that pivot. So I think uh, the Fed will keep policy quite tight. I don't see them easing, but I think that they can start to slow down the pace of policy tightening. You know, instead of 75 basis points a month, maybe we get 75 basis points a year. Uh, and that, you know, I think that's going to start to alleviate some of the pain that we've been getting in, in risk assets. I'm not sure that I'll be plowing into long duration tech stocks again. You know, I, I wouldn't be buying, I wouldn't be big buyers of the fangs at this point. But I think, you know, you, as I said, in, in the kind of super cycle, you start to think, well, where are the growth stories that emerge from all of this chaos of the last two years? And I think there are growth stories and there are sectors of the stock market that will benefit from that. And those are the th- those are the places where I think investors will be putting their money. And, and you know, if the outlook for those sectors, I think, is pretty good over the next few years. Hmm. So maybe we could double click on one industry that you just outlined there, um, which is energy, right? Which has really reemerged as an extremely important, extremely important story in in let's say all financial markets. And it was a sector, especially in the U.S., that's gotten beaten down by you know, among other things, kind of the ESG mandate, right? That's been getting broadly passed through central banks and, and higher levels of finance writ large. Um, I'd love to get your thoughts on the energy sector in general, kind of moving forward. But also, you know, I, I know you've got a seat over in in Europe, uh, right, and, and can maybe speak uh, with a little bit more boots on the ground than some of the commentators that we, that we hear from uh, so often over here. So I'd love to actually get your perspective on the European energy situation. Is it as dire straits as it seems over here? I think by now we've all kind of seen the the meme stock charts of you know German electricity prices, natural gas prices, et cetera. Do you see that as being a persistent pressure? Is it a spike? Should people be kind of worried about that as a black swan event? Um, you know, not only for European energy markets, but almost like a geopolitical uh, risk, you know, for the world if if Europe actually goes through as dire straits as it looks like. Um, maybe let's maybe let's start there with that question. 
Yeah. So, I mean, you know, there's, there's plenty of pessimism about the US economy right now. Um, I can tell you that the European situation looks infinitely worse. Um, you know, we have the same levels of inflation, higher inflation, perhaps in some countries. UK inflation is about to head to 13 percent, which is just something we haven't seen in a generation. Yep. Uh, and we don't have the wage gains. You know, so this is a massive squeeze on people's real incomes. And, you know, in the UK, our, our energy prices are set to double during the autumn because we have these price caps that are expiring. Same situation across much of Europe. There's a massive surge in, you know, people's energy bills. And, you know, wages are just not keeping up with this. And you know, this is why it's just nothing like the 1970s. We just don't have the sort of bargaining power or the labor power in order to demand offsetting wage increases. So we're just getting massively squeezed by this. And I guess the risk is that as we go into the autumn and people start to use energy more intensively, uh, Putin is going to turn the screws on this and, you know, cut the energy supplies even more. Mm. And, you know, that's going to cause more pain. And so, um, you know, this is a very serious stagflationary shock for Europe. You know, our, our incomes are being squeezed and we're, having, we're going to have to cut spending on everything else in order to pay for these energy bills. And so what we desperately need is some sort of government support mechanism uh, in order to you know, keep people afloat. Because if they don't, we're going to have you know, very serious increases in poverty during the winter. You know, some people are just not going to be able to afford to live. So you know, as bad as the, the kind of inflation is in the US, you know, it doesn't, it, to me, it doesn't feel like the US is suffering a kind of cost of living crisis in the same way that, that Europe is, is suffering this. So this is a very nasty and extreme situation, and it could get materially worse. So, you know, I, I think this is, this is I, you know, I'm pretty pessimistic about this. And, you know, we're sort of at the mercy of, of Putin at this point, because, you know, the plan clearly is to transition away from uh, Russian gas, Russian natural, ga natural gas. Uh, but, you know, we can't make that transition quickly. So, you know, we have this winter to get through. And, and that's, you know, that's the big problem that Europe is facing. What is the dynamic internally, right? I mean, there's always been this kind of, or let's say for the last 50 or so years, right, ever since the EU monetary union of this division in between North and South Europe, right? Where not to offend anyone here, I'm Italian myself, but, you know, there's kind of, you have the, the pigs in the South, right? And then, uh, you know, kind of the supporting, uh, let's say, mainstay economies, right, of, of Germany and the UK, the UK is now left, departed the European Union. We're not really sure what those trade deals are ultimately going to look like or what the economic relationship is going to be and whether the UK is going to tether itself economically more to the EU or more to the US. Uh, Germany, which is kind of usually the, the shining star, is actually suffering the most, right? Because it, as it turns out, they were the most dependent from an energy perspective on, on Russia. And now there are these kind of geopolitical strains. So even internally, I mean, what might Americans, let's say if you're you know, sitting in an American seat like I am, uh, what might you not be understanding about some of those internal dynamics even in between uh, the countries in, in the European Union? I think the, you know, the really important thing here is that we, we have an ECB that is determined to ensure that, you know, that these, these kind of dynamics don't blow up into another kind of, sort of self-fulfilling euro crisis. So if you go back to, so this is a very different dynamic to what we had um, during the sovereign debt crisis, you know, after the global financial crisis. Um, back then, you know, there, there was just, you could see that these kind of massive problems in the periphery. 
And it wasn't clear that anyone was going to come in and, and help those countries. So you almost had a one-way bet against the euro. So you had, you know, particularly uh, kind of hedge funds in the US and the UK, they could see this dynamic and they could see this almost one-way bet against Europe. Because if they bet against, uh, if they bet against sort of Italian debt, Italian yields would rise. That would lead to more austerity in Italy. That would increase the risks of Italy leaving the, the euro. And you had this sort of self-fulfilling market crisis. I think that we, you know, we don't have those dynamics anymore because we have an ECB that, you know, has struggled a bit to, to understand its role in this and, you know, has made the odd kind of mishap over the last couple of years. But it is clearly committed to ensuring that that sort of self-fulfilling market crisis doesn't happen again. So in terms of this turning into a sort of market event, I don't think that's going to happen. You know, I think the ECB understands that they have to prevent that from happening in a way that they didn't understand uh, after the global financial crisis. But clearly, you know, from a political perspective, um, this is this is very challenging. But I don't get the sense that this has led to sort of disunion in Europe. In fact, I think it's actually pushed these countries closer together. And certainly, you know, the, the approach to Russia and the Ukraine situation has been, you know, remarkably harmonious, actually, in terms of European politics. You know, European politicians have kind of stood together against Putin in this dynamic. But obviously, that's going to get tested over the winter. You know, if this situation gets materially worse, we are going to see some of these countries saying, well, why are we doing this to ourselves? <laughs> Is it worth it? You know, I think that's a sort of natural dynamic. That's where kind of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs sort of kicks in, right? Um, and definitely uh, access to warmth and shelter and food is probably at the top of that list, I would say. Um, maybe we can kind of conclude here. I've got, I've got two kind of more overarching questions. One is just the role of central banking moving forward, um, especially in this, new, in this new kind of secular environment that you outlined. Uh, and then I'd love to get your, your perspective on you know, outside of kind of some of the sectors that you outlined, uh, you know, defense, uh, housing, et cetera, energy, et cetera, like what your advice to investors are. Um, you know, I've, I've heard you, I know you've kind of spoken about the idea that central banks already, right, are not as important as people tend to think they are. You know, it's even funny for me because the whole time I've been alive, right, all I've heard is don't fight the Fed. You know, they have an enormous amount of power over financial markets, and it certainly seems like they're sitting in the driver's seat. But I listened to some of these, you know, people who were operating in financial markets 30, 40 years ago, and no one really listened to the Fed quite as much, right? Or it didn't seem like they had that direct iron grip on markets like they do. So I guess my question to you is if we move towards this environment of greater emphasis on labor, more secularly high interest rates, do you see the role of central banks changing in markets from what they are today? Well, I think the role is changing. So I think that, um, you know, we were used to these these sort of um, these kind of guardians of financial stability that as soon as something went wrong in financial markets, they would immediately step in. They would immediately cut interest rates. They would immediately throw QE. And in a sense, the sort of incentives of investors and central bankers were perfectly aligned because, you know, in a kind of low inflation environment, any shock to the economy has the potential to cause a recession. And so any shock to the financial sector has the potential to cause a recession and to cause disinflation. And so, um, you know, it was a sort of uh, a, a sort of benign, um, you know, co-interest that we had. I think that's changing, you know, and clearly that's been the lesson of the last six months. You know, when I've had investors all the time saying, oh, my God, when is their pain? Where, when do we hit their pain threshold? When are they going to come in and, and rescue us? 
you know, clearly uh, they haven't, you know, they haven't given a damn about investors P&L through, through most of this year. And in fact, they've actually wanted to squeeze the financial sector in a way that we just haven't seen in a generation. So that's changed. Uh, I think you're right to question their power. Uh, and I think that, you know, for the last 30 or 40 years, they've been telling us that they were the ones that gave us low inflation. So, you know, they basically believe their own bullshit on this, you know, as far as as far as I can see. You had central bankers that took credit for the for the sort of great moderation in inflation. Uh, they believed it was their credibility that had anchored inflation expectations at very low levels, all this nonsense that central bankers come up with. And now we're sort of on the reverse of that, because, you know, as um, inflation has gone up, as inflation expectations have started to rise, we're seeing the flip side, which is where people are, are blaming central bankers for the inflation, which probably they didn't really cause. <laughs> but they can't say that because having taken credit for the low inflation, they now have to take responsibility for the fact that inflation is going up. So the question is going to be, you know, if we get to the point where um, inflation becomes a persistent problem and central banks are trying to do something about it, but can't do something about it, is somebody going to come in and say, well, you know, you guys have had your time and, and it's over now. And so are we going to see politicians actually trying to tell central bankers, you know, you know, the good times are over and you guys need a different mandate or, you know, we're going to have to take that away from you. You know, is, is there an environment in which these central bankers begin to lose their independence? I, I wouldn't rule that out because, you know, we we. <laughs> We've been used to this world, uh, you know, where, which I don't exist. Uh, I don't think exists anymore. And you know, the views on central banking independence can change very rapidly. You know, one of my first jobs uh, was at the UK Treasury. I joined the UK Treasury in in 1997. It was the year that um, the Bank of England was given its independence by Gordon Brown. And actually, the Treasury had written this paper just 12 months earlier that argued that the Bank of England should not be given its independence, that there was no reason to give the Bank of England independence, that the government could do just as well. But a new politician came in and he basically said, I don't care what you guys think. I'm making the Bank of England independent. I'm doing it on Monday. And the Treasury had four days to figure out how to do that. So, you know, views on things like this can change pretty quickly. You know, that changed in the course of a year and over the course of four days. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, these central banks that they're sort of the way I think you I think you can think about this in terms of the sort of neoliberal super cycle. So we've been in this neoliberal super cycle for 30 years. Central banks are almost the ultimate protectors of this neoliberal super cycle. And they're now telling us if they have to cause a recession in order to, to in order to protect neoliberalism, in order to ensure there is no secular change in the economy, they will do that. But at some point, you know, they, they clearly don't have a mandate for causing mass unemployment. So at some point, if they really go down this route, I think the politicians are going to come in and say, well, you know, you guys have had your time and it's time to try something a bit different. So I wouldn't rule that out. Four whole days to prepare, huh? I really, really, whoever that politician was, he really believed in giving people enough time to prepare for just a small change like that. Um, I have the paper. I, I, I kept a copy of yeah. it. It was written 12 months earlier, and it concluded with the words, uh, central bank independence is not worth all the upheaval that it would entail. And then Gordon Brown comes in and he says, yeah, I've seen that paper, but I don't care what you guys think. This is going to happen. And you guys have got four days to figure out how it's going to happen. 
make it happen. <laughs> you know, things can change. Okay. Well, two part question, which I love to do. Uh, when you were sitting in your seat then in the treasury as a newbie, what did you think? Did you think uh, Gordon Brown was making the right decision? And now you, Dario, with some, uh, some you know, battle scars uh, in between now and then, do you think that that was the right decision in retrospect? I, no, I, I, think cent- I think independent central banking is fine. You know, I, I, I don't have a problem with central banks who believe um, their own bullshit as they have done over the last 20 years. I think the issue uh, for the past decade in particular has just been this horrendous policy mix you know, we had very tight fiscal policy at a time when fiscal policy was super effective. And we had very easy monetary policy at a time when monetary policy was totally ineffective. And it was that policy mix that gave us, you know, bond yields at 800 year lows. You know, I use UK data. We have this data going back centuries. I can tell you that, you know, UK bond yields are at their lowest level in 800 years as a result of this disastrous policy mix. So actually, you know, I don't, I don't have a problem with an independent central bank, a central bank that wants to raise interest rates. What I have a problem with is, is the policy mix overall. And a big part of that has got to be about fiscal policy. And, you know, a big part of this sort of new super cycle is that we have to have politicians that are more willing to use fiscal policy in order to get the economy going again. Because the problems that we've had over the last hmm. decade, you know, inequality, polarization, uh, crumbling infrastructure, uh, climate change, these are not problems that we can solve that we can solve with monetary policy. You know, cutting interest rates to zero and doing QE is not going to is not going to solve the basic macroeconomic problem that we've had over the past decade. So I used to joke, you know, about MMT. I didn't have a problem with, you know, with politicians believing in MMT. In fact, I think we want to live in a world where politicians do believe in MMT. But if we have that in combination with independent central banks who don't believe in MMT, I think you end up with a much more, you know, growth-friendly policy mix than what we've had over the last decade. And it was that austerity that proved to be so dangerous. I just don't think there's a, there's a way back to that austerity now. And I think that's the bit that if central banks try to fight, you know, that's where they're going to run into problems. All right, let's, let's end with like, let's say, let, let's say you're sitting in an investment seat or an allocator seat. Um, because one other facet, let's say, uh, over the course of the last 20 or so years, and maybe this is a direct uh, goal of central banks or an indirect one, whatever it is, we've seen kind of a pronounced decrease in volatility, right? Um, things have been a pretty steady rise up. And it's, you know, over the last couple of years, um, definitely <laughs> there's the exogenous event of COVID and everything. But we're starting to see increased levels of volatility. It's happening in financial markets. I would argue it's happening in society uh, in, in a more broad way. Uh, but should investors be preparing for a decade of increased volatility? Um, and if so, like, let's say I know you, you have a tilt maybe more towards value stocks in certain sectors, but how should investors be be playing this or thinking about allocation that's different now in this new secular environment versus the one that we've had over the course of the last 20 years? OK, so I think if you think about the great moderation, you know, that which is kind of defined macro for the last 30 years, very low inflation, super efficient supply chains, globalization. Uh, you know, those are the things that are beginning to change. I think inflation is going to be much more volatile than we've been used to. I don't think it's going to be, you know, massively higher. I don't think we're going to have five, six, seven, eight percent inflation, but we're going to have much more volatility inflation than we've been used to. And a big part of that is climate change. So you're going to have kind of direct physical consequences of climate change. And, you know, we've experienced that over the past two years, you know, more extreme weather. 
in the UK, we've had, you know, the highest temperatures that we've ever recorded. And, you know, it's led to all kinds of problems uh, in the UK economy over the past six months. Um, so you're going to get more extreme weather. Uh, that's going to lead to more, more, you know, more extreme swings in commodity prices. But also we're going to be transitioning to new greener technologies, newer energies. And those are intermittent in their very nature. So that in itself is going to cause a lot of volatility in inflation. So we're going to have much more volatile inflation. Every time inflation goes up, our real incomes will get squeezed. So you're going to have more volatility in the real economy that comes from inflation. That's not something that we've had to deal with in a very long time, but it's something that we clearly have right now. You know, it's one of the big reasons that you have a growth scare in the US is just the fact that wages haven't kept up with, with prices. So people are being squeezed. Um, so you get more volatility in inflation, more volatility in the real economy that, that comes from that. Uh, and, and so I think, you know, this is a world where overall, I think returns on bonds, particularly real returns on bonds, are going to be horrendous. You know, that was the that was the 1970s, but it was also the 1940s and 1950s. Over long periods of time, you know, even if you get transitory spikes in inflation, it's just going to destroy real returns in bonds. I think equity returns are going to be more volatile than we've been used to. But I think the big story is this rotation away from kind of zero interest rate, you know, perma QE growth stocks towards those sectors of the economy that actually benefit from this environment. So I think, you know, commodities, uh, particularly because of climate change, you know, we're going to we're going to need massive public and private investment in green technologies. There's going to be investment opportunities in, in that. Uh, I think that there's a secular housing story, you know, again, near term, very messy, interest rates going up, you know, bullwhip effect in housing. That's another bullwhip effect that we've seen on the kind of inventory side in housing. Uh, that's going to be quite messy. But there's a secular story coming out of that, because in the US, we have this kind of bulge in the population of people moving into their 30s, which is prime, uh, you know, home buying age. So there's a secular story there. There's a secular story in housing that comes from hybrid working. You know, because we can, because we're only going into the office three, four times a week, we're now prepared to live further distances away from the office. Uh, and so you, you're kind of bringing in a new first time buyer, people that were previously kind of priced out of prime property locations, they can now afford to buy houses. So there's a secular story in housing. There's a secular story in public in investment, because, you know, we're going to have to invest in infrastructure. You know, that one of the big things about austerity was that we massively cut back on public infrastructure over the past 15 years. That can't continue. That has to reverse. We're going to see, you know, a bigger role of the government in the economy. So as we said, defence spending, uh, uh, sort of trying to take control of key commodities. So things like semiconductors, but also, you know, just actual commodities. I think all of that has implications for investors. I think that bonds will still have that role as a sort of equity hedge, but it's not going to be as clean as it was. So that the kind of correlation between bonds and equities that was constantly negative, you know, after the 2000s, that's going to become weaker so that the hedge from bonds is not going to be as clean as it was before. But I think, you know, the big story is about in, investing in commodities, investing in value stocks, investing in tangibles, investing in the real economy. That sort of realignment of the real economy and financial markets is absolutely critical in all of this. Dario, unfortunately, this is all the time we have. Lots of stuff to chew over here, uh, for sure. If folks want to find out more about you, uh, your research, what is the best way to do that? 
probably the best place is is Twitter. So if you if you follow me on Twitter, it's just at Dario Perkins, uh, one word. Uh, then um, you know I use Twitter quite a lot. I, I, put, I have a blog that I write um, that links back to some of my other research. Um, so that's the best place to start. Awesome. Well, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. We'll have to do it again soon. No worries. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm.